I have a confession. As a pastor, and as somebody who has spent a number of years studying the Bible, if I'm honest, there are times that reading the Bible is just difficult. I'm just opening up there to y'all today. That as somebody who spends a good part of my life work reading scripture, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes there are things that are, oh my gosh, some things that just feel way more urgent at the time. There are dishes to be done, laundry to be folded, kids to chase. And then there's just the reality of the reading itself. That some parts of the Bible are they're hard to understand. You know, if you think about it, like, at minimum, what we are reading is 2,000 years old. And it was written in a different language, and a language that is considered ancient. Um, actually, three languages. Koine Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so, we read translations of that. And while those languages, because they're ancient. They no longer change. Ours does, doesn't it? So even reading today what's on paper and our Bibles is sometimes challenging for us to understand. Because we're reading something that has been translated from another language. We're also reading something that was written in a completely different culture than our own. 2,000 years, at minimum, is a huge span. When you think about what was written in our New Testament and doesn't even touch our Old Testament. I mean, just think about the changes in our own world in the last 10 years. iPhones didn't exist. All of those fun home devices, of Google and Alexa, they didn't exist, but now they seem so commonplace. So thinking about just that change from then to now for us makes it challenging with what we're reading, doesn't it, at times? And then, then there's the fact that some of it is just hard to read. And I don't mean in terms of comprehension. I mean it makes you uncomfortable. There are stories that I read in the Bible and I go, I, d I don't know what to do with that at the moment. And then there are some parts that I... I find boring. I, I mean, I, I know when I read the genealogies, all those lists of names, I know the stories of some of those names, but I still go, come on. I'm just going to skip ahead here. And, and the fact is that the Bible itself does itself no favors because it calls itself the law of God. Have you ever read a law book? It doesn't sound very appealing to me. And it's not something I'm going to go check out at the library or order up on Amazon for just fun. And to read a law book sounds more like an assignment for either an attorney, a wannabe attorney, or an insomniac. So 
when we think about what it is to read scripture, to read the Bible, it can feel overwhelming. It can be intimidating even to read. I mean, the fact is we call it a book, but it's really a collection of books. It's, it's narrative, it's poetry, it's, it's law. All wrapped up in one collection that we call the Bible. But going back to that term, the law of God, you may have heard the phrase Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law, and is what is often referred to as the first five books of the Bible. But Torah also, you know, it means law, but it also means instruction, guide, teaching. And sometimes I think we have to think about that more than, than anything, that this is, this is meant to, to guide us in, in terms of teaching us the story of God. Peter Ennis, who is a scholar who studies the Bible, has said the Bible is more a book of wisdom rather than prescripted answers. The Bible is a book of wisdom rather than prescripted answers, rather than just, you know, plug this in, get this answer. Ask this question, find this answer. It's wisdom that guides you. So it's not so much black and white at times, but it helps us navigate this complex world with truth, and most of all, applying love to that truth. Or to put it another way, from a Jewish scholar, Abraham Heschel, he described the Bible as seed. The Bible is the seed God is the sun, and we are the soil. And I like that image in terms of thinking about how we engage with Scripture. Because there's a difference, isn't there, between reading Scripture and engaging with it. I can read a lot of things, and I read a lot of crap on the Internet. But I don't always take it in to the point that it changes me. The idea of engaging with something for the purpose that I will be changed for good. And when I think about what, when I engage with scripture, when I engage with the Bible, when I plant a seed in doing that, interacting with God as the sun, I have seen that seed take root and grow. And I've seen something take root in me. And that means often paying attention. Thinking about it, reflecting on what I've heard, what I've read. Not just reading it and closing it, but wrestling with it. Asking questions of it and allowing it to ask questions of me. And asking God in the midst of that to show me something, to maybe reveal to me something I didn't know or understand. And that's part of the idea of being soil. That, that soil, just can't, you just can't throw a bunch of seed on it and hope that it all grow. You can, but it's much better if you prepare the soil. 
if you get it ready, if you take out some of the rocks, maybe you fertilize it a little bit, put some water in there. And I think about that with my own life. Am I prepared as soil to receive what I'm reading? Because if I'm tired, if I'm distracted, or as I often lie to myself, I can multitask. Nothing really sinks in. That I close the book and I promptly forget what I've read. And in that I create soil that's not very inviting or even accommodating for growth. But those places of scripture that I have, that I have nurtured like a seed, those have become very powerful in my life. And often that is in unexpected ways. And they become places that I go to again and again because it's where I find comfort, it's where I find hope, it's where I find myself challenged in my faith. Now, I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't attend Sunday school as a child. But I knew a lot of the stories because I had a child's Bible, which is maybe why I'm particularly passionate about getting Bibles into kids' hands when they ask for them. When they tell me they don't have one, I say, let's pick one out. Because I knew some of those stories because of that little children's Bible. And one story in particular may sound familiar to you, is Jonah and the whale, as we most often describe it. But in the Hebrew, it's really Jonah and the big fish. And I knew this story, you know, that Jonah got swallowed by a whale, was in its bellies for three days. But it would be later that I would have to read this as part of a class in Hebrew. And we would read it in the original language. And this is such a short read in the Old Testament. It's about four chapters. You can do it rather quickly. And it's about a prophet named Jonah. And Jonah is, is a curmudgeon. He's cranky. He's bitter. He's sassy. And, and God gives him this task. And he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to share my message with them. And God's message, it ain't pretty. It's about destruction. And Jonah says, no way. And he hops a boat to Tarshish, as far away as he can get. And this is where we get to the point where we read about the fish, right? That Jonah gets tossed overboard, and he gets swallowed by this fish, and the fish ends up throwing him up in whatever place than Nineveh. And I think a lot of times that's where our story stops. That's kind of what we know and remember. But when we dig into it and we read it, we, we start to see that Jonah does what God asks, but he does it so begrudgingly. He's just bitter because he hates Nineveh. See, the Ninevites are his enemy. And he would love to see them destroyed. So why would he want to deliver God's message? You'd think maybe he would be eager to tell them, God's going to come and get you. You're going to have the wrath of God. But the thing is, Jonah knows God. Because in telling them what's going to happen, 
they have the opportunity to change. And in that is the heart of God, is mercy. See, God hates their violent and evil ways as much as Jonah, if not more so. But God also has mercy. And God wants to give them a second chance, a chance to change. And that is the problem for Jonah. And that's why he resists going and how we get kind of the, the meat of the story, the problem of Jonah resisting and then God making a way. And this is what happens. The Ninevites hear Jonah's message as he goes through the city and he's telling them that the wrath of God is coming and the people repent. They turn from their ways and they seek forgiveness from God. They take God up on that second chance. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. A little different sometimes than the children's story we think about. And this rocked me. Because I also saw in Jonah a little bit of myself. This is Jonah's words here. This is why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew, God, that you would spare them, and I didn't want to give them that opportunity. To see the bigness of God's mercy in comparison often to my own unwillingness to forgive. And the thing is, the story ends kind of in this funny situation that Jonah goes outside the city and he pouts. And he sits under this plant because it's hot and the sun's coming down and he sits under this plant and then a worm comes along and destroys the plant. And so Jonah is left in the sun and he's bitter and he's cranky and he's crying out to God, just take me. I'm so done with you. And God's words to him are this. You've been concerned about this plant. Jonah's so mad about his plant dying. Though you did not tend it or make it grow. It wasn't really even his plant. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? This is God. I had compassion on this city in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. They, they didn't know. And that's why I wanted you to bring my word to them, Jonah. And also many animals. Like not just these people, but all of the creation that exists within this city, I wanted to spare. I wanted to give them the opportunity to see the truth and turn towards me. And they did. This is how Jonah ends. This is how the book ends. Like, it just rocked me when I read this. Truly read it and engaged with it and looked at who God was and who Jonah was and how in comparing the two, 
I see how merciful God is. Especially in compared to Jonah's lack. And I share this story with you to just say, this is what scripture can do when we engage with it. When we delve into it, when we read the stories closely, when we ask questions of it, when we look at who God is in the midst of it and how God is interacting with humanity. And we'll see this in Jesus' own life and how he demonstrates, how he engages with scripture and how his life is immersed in it. You see, after Jesus' own baptism, we read in the Gospel of Matthew that he will head out into the wilderness where he will be tempted. And this is why we engage in Lent as we follow this path of Jesus's, of, of taking time and setting it aside and, and time for reflection and time to be with God. This is what we do in the season that leads up to Easter. We, we imitate Christ in this. And see, when Jesus is in the wilderness, when he is alone and fasting, probably starving, the devil comes to him and tempts him three times and offers him food. He offers him power. And each time, Jesus answers him with scripture. Answers with the truth of God's word. You see, this is what it is to have wisdom, is to use that wisdom that we've gained from reading scripture to navigate situations in life that are difficult. See, scripture will speak to us, will speak into our lives if we allow it, if we invite it to. And so when, when I read something like Jesus doing this, and I think, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be kind and compassionate and loving. I want to look at the world the way he does. And I think, how do I do that? I, I need to imitate him. I need to learn who he was and learn from that. And when I see Jesus use scripture in this way, I think, that is a call to my own life. That Jesus reminds himself and he reminds us of the truth of God in the midst of that difficult situation. And he uses it to defend himself from the lies of this world. And I think so often we need to hear that ourselves. And I think about other passages of scripture that I have just leaned into in my own life. And particularly in crisis, I have leaned heavily into Psalm 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is a truth I go back to time and time again. When I'm in crisis, when someone else is in crisis, because I know that when, when we feel brokenhearted, when we feel crushed, we most often feel alone. That what compounds the pain we may be going through, the suffering we're enduring, is, is also this sense that we are alone in it. 
And this passage reminds me again and again that God is near us even when we cannot feel him. That often that pain and that suffering prevents me from sensing God in the midst of it. And the scripture reminds me that he is there. That's the beauty of our scripture is that it contains things like gospels that tell us the story of Christ. It contains this rich Old Testament literature that tells us the story of God encountering this nation of Israel. And it has this portion too called the Psalms. These songs, these prayers that often give us words when we don't have them that connect with us so much emotionally and that will so often bring light into darkness and show us a path that will lead to life. That at the very heart of the Bible is Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm and it's also the longest chapter in scripture. It has 22 sections that are based on the Hebrew alphabet. Within each of those sections are about eight verses. And the psalm itself is focused totally on the author's love for God and how he cherishes the word of God. Because it's the word of God that roots him, that guides him, that directs his path in life and always directs him back to God. And that the author is writing about how he seeks this heart-level knowledge of God. So he doesn't just read scripture. He wants to take it in so that it changes him. And there's a section in particular, I think, that speaks powerfully to what happens when we engage with scripture, when we pay attention to it. That within Psalm 119 is verse 105. And some of you may know it. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. The idea that God's word gives light, his message illuminates our steps as well as the path itself. And it's a lovely image, I think, for our journey in this life as we move in the direction of Christ. And What's so cool is in this verse, the words lamp and light here are brilliant. You see, the lamp would have only given so much light for the next step. But these images up on the screen are actually beautiful archaeological finds. One for how intact they are. But to give you an idea of their scale, they would fit in the palm of my hand. So you think about a lamp that size that would fit in the palm of your hand with oil in it. These are called Davidic lamps. That they would have been the, the lamps that would have been familiar to the writer of this psalm. And so you think about the oil that would have filled that lamp and the wick that they would have lit and how much light would have come from that little lamp. Just enough for your next step 
the idea that you must carry that lamp with you closely. You can't just use it, see where you're going, and set it down. No, you have to hold that lamp close to you because you need it for every step. To see what one would have looked like, a replica here, lit. That you would need a lamp like this to keep moving forward. To see where you are placing your feet, guiding your decisions. Step by step, we navigate life with God's word, this lamp. But God's word is also described in this very verse as light. And this light is different than this lamp. The light itself is like daybreak. You think about what it is to see the sunrise. And some of you may have gotten to see it this morning. I did. To see as it comes and it, the light itself invades everything. Allowing you to see what darkness had hidden. To reveal the big picture. Kind of the idea of a floodlight. So we have this dual image of a, a tiny lamp that would fit in your hand. And then the idea of daybreak itself. Two images of what God's word is and how it functions in our life. See, I need the lamp in my everyday. I need to hold that word close. But I also need it to show me the direction I'm going. That not just each next step, but I may not be able to see the whole path, but I know the direction I'm heading. That direction is Christ. That is what it is to engage with Scripture. To dig into it. To hold it close. Now, the challenge is, how do we do this? And some of you may have a wonderfully rich practice in your own life. You know, that's what we're doing in this season of Lent and these days that lead up to Easter is we are looking at key practices in our faith that simply put us in a place to better encounter God. And one of these is studying scripture to engage with it. And, and those of you who have a rich practice, maybe your task is to share it with another to share how scripture has changed you. But for those of us who may be going, well, I've tried. I've tried to read the Bible. But like you said earlier, it's difficult at times. And I'll tell you how I got started. I, I got started in my 20s. And I joined a Bible study. You know, I tried to read the Bible on my own and I really didn't get very far or just pick and choose what I wanted to look at. But when I joined this Bible study, and it, it was an intense one, I, I will just confess to you, I don't even think I really thought through what I was signing up for. I signed up for 32 weeks of Bible study because it was the only one offered and a friend of mine had invited me to help with our youth ministry at the time and, and Sean's like, if you're going to serve in youth ministry, I need you someplace where you're learning and growing. And so I signed up for the Bible study. 
But the thing is, I began to read scripture. Partially because I knew that we would talk about it and I wanted to have something to talk about because I always like to have something to talk about. And also, like, just the idea of being in community and figuring it out together made it safer for some reason. And I know that can be intimidating, but when, when we come together and realize that this is an opportunity to engage with people and with God, it becomes enjoyable. And Jesus himself invited others to join him because he knew the power of community, the power of learning from each other. That's the thing. I, I walked in this Bible study, and I hadn't really you know, read the Bible. I had that children's Bible, but I just knew stories. And as we read it together, I learned from people who were nothing like me. I mean, nobody looked like me in that Bible study. I was a, a woman unmarried in her 20s, and I was in the room with two married women in their 30s, an older couple that had recently retired and had no children at home, and then a couple in their 80s. And it was the most beautiful thing I experienced at that time in my life. They were wonderful to me and would listen to me and ramble and give ideas, but I also listened to them and I learned from them. Sometimes rich information that came from the Bible, but a lot of times I just learned perspective and empathy and connection. There is no personal holiness without social holiness, as John Wesley would say, that we can't do this faith on our own well. We grow together and we figure it out together. So maybe where you need to start is in a group. And the groups that we have offered right now, they're, they're open. So step into one. And then there's the idea of a spiritual practice on your own of reading scripture. And I want to encourage you to start small. I'm serious. So often we say, you know, I'm going to read the Bible in a year and there's Bibles set up that way. But if you've never read scripture, that is daunting. And people who study the nature of habits and how habits are formed will tell you that starting too big is a sure way to fail because we get overwhelmed, we miss a day or two, and then suddenly we feel like we've failed, so we give up. I encourage you instead, start small. And in our study, the author encourages us to just consider reading five verses a day. And you're like, I can do more than five. Your goal is five. You know, think about your day. And you feel overwhelmed and you're like, oh, I still got to read something. Five verses seems really doable. So start there. See, habits are best when they start small. Build consistency and then grow it. 
And I want to give you a moment or two to make some plans. Because I'm serious. Like, you can hear this and walk out, and that was a great idea, but make a plan right now. Take a moment. If you do not have a practice of reading scripture on a regular basis, take a moment right now and think, when would I do this? Pick a time a day. Maybe hook it to something you already do. Maybe you go for a walk every day. The beautiful thing is a lot of our Bible apps that go on our phones, they will read to you. And you could take in scripture that way. Maybe you're going to use part of your lunch break at work. Five verses. Probably take you less than ten minutes, even reading it slowly and carefully. Again, start small. Build the habit. Now, before you start to make your plan, I want to tell you something. And I'm just offering this as a suggestion. No, no, don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't make a plan to wake up early and read scripture. Don't, because you won't. You may do it one or two days, but it's going to fall off quickly. I mean, we're all living without an hour today, right? And that feels hard. (laughs) So don't set yourself up for failure by adding an extra habit on top of a new habit. Hook it to something you already do. Maybe it's during your morning coffee when normally you scroll Facebook. Open your Bible before you do that. And part of your plan, I want you to think about how you're going to make it visible. By that I mean, do you need to put your Bible by your nightstand because you're going to do it at night or first thing and then you want to grab it to remind you. Make it visible. Maybe set an alarm on your phone to remind you. Make it visible. Set yourself up for success. If you really want to engage in this, this is how we start. This is how personal trainers will tell you to start. You don't start by lifting 200 pounds. You start small and you build up to it. You build consistency, then you increase. It's the same with any habit in our lives and especially with reading God's word. So I want you to take a moment. If you have a bulletin with you or even grab a prayer card out of the the bucket, write your plan. Maybe you're going to do it in the mornings. Maybe you're going to do it in your lunch hour. Whatever. Write it down. Make it real. I'm serious. I'll wait for you. I got time. <laughs>